Artistic Whispers Productions presents Antithesis Book One Predestination and Other Games of Chance A podcast novel written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer Author contact information at www.jdsawyer.net Featuring the vocal talents of Aaron K. Balabini Ryan Levy Stephanie J. Sawyer Stephen H. Wilson and Kitty McKeon with original music by Danny Shade. This story contains harsh language, sexual situations, and graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. And now, Episode 3. Hello, this is Stephen H. Wilson, director of Prometheus Radio Theater and creator of the Mark Time and Parsec award-winning science fiction audio drama, The Arbiter Chronicles. You're listening to Antithesis, book one, and this is the story so far. Allie and Jim Hartman have been on the job too long. A year-long stakeout under contract from Senator Shelley has netted them a lot of cash and a lot of misery. They're bored, their marriage is fraying at the edges, and Allie is sick of dressing in drag every day to play Alex Hart renowned card-sharp and all-around terrifying guy. They think the stakeout might be over. If they can confirm that Joss Kyle is really their target, Reuben Briggs, they can go home to California before they forget who they are. Reuben Briggs need Joss Kyle just wanted to escape. As National Security Advisor of the United States of North America, he developed a bad habit of collecting too much dirt on the wrong kinds of people. When a corrupt senator put a contract out on his life, he fled the country for South America. During his time there, clawing his way through the underworld, supporting himself on his poker winnings, and running short cons, he killed, hurt, and destroyed a lot of people. But none of it bothered him until he met Alex Hart and cheated at cards. Now his conscience is eating at him, and as he sits awake with a gun in his hand, waiting for contract killers to burst through his door, on the planet below, sunset is coming to Ecuador. A new player enters our little drama. In the fading equatorial sun, the carbon fiber rails seem to grow out of the mountain like the polished trunk of a sequoia that got too big for its britches. The rails stretched high overhead and scraped the sky, the four sets of them and the reinforced struts forming an obelisk that vanished through the atmosphere's edge long before it ended. It was what Nimrod could only dream of, a true tower to heaven, intruding obstinately into God's domain like a single raised finger shoved defiantly upwards. It was obscene. It had been force grown out of the ground by nanobots seated deep down in the bedrock. The bots metabolized carbon and sunlight in excreted nanotubules, and the pattern was controlled by remote direction from an on-site transmitter. For five years, hundreds of millions of the little mechanical germs had worked their way up into the sky, literally creating a 10-mile-high pile of shit that the U.S. had then wired and installed grounding straps and control switches in. They called it a space elevator. The entire project cost less than a dozen conventional orbital boosts. It paid for itself within a month of going online. This was why the Persians had conquered Venezuela and Chile. It was why they were conducting raids northwards, trying to extend their influence up through the Andes to Quito. 
If they were able to make it to Quito, they could capture the space elevator. Lacking any sophisticated nanotech industry, it was the best they could manage. The elevator was the Sol system's ultimate toll road. And that was why Percy Scott was here. He had been the eyes on the ground in Quito for a year now, and his assignment would be up soon. In another few months, he'd take the elevator to Sidon to meet his wife and take a well-earned sabbatical. The thought of traveling on that monstrosity made him sick. In his linen shirt and Panama hat, he stood in the shade of a cacao tree and looked at the shadow of the earth creeping gradually up the elevator. Another day done. When he'd first read about the elevator, he'd been vaguely uneasy. Images of the Tower of Babel had leapt to mind. It was one thing to send up satellites and ships. That was something that couldn't be helped in a global age. But it was quite another to build a tower to heaven. Perhaps the economics made sense. Percy didn't much care. But the message of this symbol couldn't be ignored. And Percy brooked no flirtation with blasphemy. But going off-planet for his sabbatical was the only way to get far enough out of the loop and relax with Marion. Beautiful, sweet Marion. Honey hair and pale skin and the smell of spring rain, innocent of all the secrets and lies that were necessary to maintain the fragile world she lived in. He closed his eyes to the abomination in front of him and thought of her and remembered why it was all worth it. Hola, senor! He was jolted out of his reverie by a small boy's bicycle bell. He greeted the boy in Spanish and bought his traditional Tuesday night tamale from the hot cart that the boy towed behind his bike, and then waved the kid on his way with a cheerful, Buenas noches. Percy leaned back against the cacao tree and peeled off the wrapper. Inside the corn husk was a small crystalline splinter, which he removed and stowed in his pocket. Instructions from Washington. There'd be time to read them after dinner. He sank his teeth into the masa bread and the carnitas pork wrapped within and savored the basicness of one life form devouring the remains of another to sustain itself. When he finished, he picked a fruit from the cacao tree and feasted on its melony flesh, spitting the seeds on the ground. The sign etched in the wall next to the door read, Port of Call. Bar and casino, poker, blackjack, roulette, drinks from all across the solar system, sandwich shop in rear, closed on Sundays. Closed on Sundays. Since when had there been blue laws off-world? Had some raving evangelical boosted up here to open a bar and casino? Joss coughed in disbelief. His shuttle left this afternoon. He couldn't afford to stay another day. Shit! He'd had no rest the previous night, the pathetic shreds of his character keeping his mind busy with guilt for sacrificing his dignity for a scrap of bread. Now, the only way he knew of to earn absolution was shut to him. Just a few more hours. Another time, Alex Hart. Joss pulled the brim of his hat down over his eye. Time to kill, and he had nothing to do but stroll among the various shops. Sidon had much the feel of any cosmopolitan trading post in that, aside from its structural differences, it looked and felt pretty much like everywhere else. The tourist phenomenon at work on Earth would gradually drain all but the veneer off the sense of place, as hotels and resorts grew up to shield tourists from anything approaching culture shock. Here, there was nothing but tourism. 
The place hadn't existed long enough to develop a microculture of its own. Its population was too transitory, and its ethnicity is too mixed. One might as well wonder whether an airport complex had any sort of substantive culture beyond that of throwing strangers together for a few days here and there. Sidon was a way station, and very little more than that. And because of that, there was nothing to do. No particularly local cuisine, no local arts theater yet. There hadn't been a young generation growing up on the station to build one. Nothing really but souvenir shops, restaurants, VR shops, and cineplexes. Although his job once demanded that he stay very familiar with the entertainment world, Joss had never much liked film, and he had a stubborn grounded streak that made VR deeply unappealing to him. When he wanted to pass the time, he far preferred a good book. Old-fashioned, actually written by a person, sapient literature. From what he'd seen so far, and what he remembered from previous visits when he was important in some sense other than being a popular target, real books seemed to be a much scarcer commodity off-world than on. He nearly walked the circumference of the station on the main streets. All these shops and not a bookstore in sight. Bookstores were hard to find in general, but usually there was at least one to be found, even in a small town. No bookstore in the whole commercial belt, and the bloody casino is closed on Sundays. Not even the Russians are this bad at central planning. Joss came upon another directory and located a media shop. Well, at least he'd be able to find a manufactured novel there. When you're starving, cotton candy will keep you alive for a while, even when you really need a proper meal. Aimless wanderings again. Oh well. They would end soon enough. Once he got to Nineveh, he'd be busy with supplying himself to join the Martian terraformers and rushing to catch his shuttle. Maybe. Damn you, Alex Hart. Damn you! Come on, Jiminy. We've been here a year and we haven't been out on the town more than a dozen times. I don't want to stay at home today. Let's take a walk through the hydroponic garden or the green belt. We could even go catch a North film in town or take a tour of the station. Let's just not sit at home. Allie sat at the breakfast table, sampling one of Jim's newest variations on corned beef hash. Too salty. Jim made a sour face at her. Look, I want to spend the day with you. I get one day a week, and I don't want to waste it walking through shops. It's Sunday. I want to stay here, alone with you. No distractions. And I hate North. He picked up his coffee and grumbled into it, barely audibly. Keep you away from the fucking card games. She decided to ignore the baiting and stayed as diplomatic as possible. Fine. We'll find something else. She paused and took a deep breath, then softened her voice. Jim, I love you very much, and you are very... She lowered her eyes seductively at him and dropped her voice to a throb. Very good in bed. But I want to do something other than stay in bed and screw all day. <laughs> he snorted at her and turned his attention back to his breakfast. She tried again. Oh, don't be like that. We'll have plenty of time for that tonight. Come on, take me out. Show me off. I'll wear something sexy that still says I'm yours. She watched Jim's impassive face. He seemed to consider it for a moment, then nodded resignedly. All right, fine. Let's go walk in the gardens and see what happens. He allowed a smile to creep across his features. So, are you going to get dressed? Me? 
She stood up and walked around the table, making a show of peeking under it and shaking her head disapprovingly. Jim, I don't think you want to go out with that thing announcing itself. Allie turned away and made for the bedroom, walking carefully so her shirt didn't ride up her ass more than a few inches, hoping she could get dressed before Jim tackled her and pinned her onto the bed. Once around the corner, she broke into a run, keeping on her toes so he wouldn't hear how fast she was going. She almost made it. She'd sloughed off her shirt and gotten into her bra, panties, and blue jeans before a hundred kilos of flying bartender knocked her back onto the bed. <laughs> it was an odd, almost intolerable ritual. Normally, though, Allie couldn't bring herself to tell him to stop. Since they'd taken this assignment, she needed all the exercise she could get, and wrestling with a man twice your size definitely wakes you up in the morning. This morning, though, she had no appetite for it. She gave him the slip and managed to get away with her bra clasp still fastened. When he reached after her, she shrugged him off and thought better of it and turned back to him and winked. If I let you get started now, we'll never get going. She bent down to kiss him and managed to keep her poker face on. She couldn't afford to let her guard down. If she let her feelings show, he'd mistake it as disgust for him. And it wasn't him she was disgusted with. You certainly keep me on my toes. She kept her voice light but she wished she had a razor to cut her own tongue out. It would have been more honest. Don't complain. It's my job. He began to get dressed himself. T-shirt and jeans, a ten-shot Smith & Wesson thermal pistol, and the concealed waistband holster. Allie chose a green velour scoop neck and a gold locket. She grabbed her smaller three-shot Remington thermal and slipped it in her pocket. Alec's heart had too good of a reputation. He was a wild card in a volatile situation, which is why she'd been put on this surveillance job. Cassie Orenthal hated surveillance. She hated the waiting and the boredom. She hated having to perpetually brush stray strands of her orange hair out from in front of the field glasses. She hated how useless it usually was. This time, though, something interesting happened. A shortish, darkish, curly-haired woman and a tall, imposing man came out the door, scrupulously locking it behind them. She was petite, well-curved, her torso was a bit long for her legs. It suited her well. And he towered over her, but seemed somehow diminished as he walked a half-step behind her like a bodyguard. They had a synergy between them, and they watched everything. They kept in touch making eye contact with each other in reflections, and by apparently casual glances. Oh, they were professionals. Two men went in, and a man and woman came out. Every weekend for the last four this happened. The entire time Cassie had watched the place. When it did, Alec's heart was nowhere to be found. Uh-huh. Gotcha. Cassie spat out a wad of stale chewing gum and followed her quarry. This time, she wouldn't lose them. Final pre-boarding call. All passengers with major cargo, extra baggage, or small children are asked to check in at the ticket counter. Shuttle leaving for FSS Nineveh in 45 minutes. <laughs> extra baggage. Lady, you have no idea. Joss was hiding behind yesterday's edition of USNA Today's local incarnation, watching the crowds through half a dozen pinholes in the text. Between furtive peeks through and around the paper, Joss took the opportunity to catch up on the news. Luna Colony was trying to rope Mars, Sidon, and Nineveh into a non-Terran confederation. It wasn't anything new. 
Though with the wars back home, contests, Joss corrected himself, there hadn't been a real war since Egypt took Israel back in 2078. National rivalries were now settled by little more than a week's worth of bombings, or, more normally, covert operations and artificial political coups. Even Persia's conquest of parts of South America had been done without a proper war. Very measured, careful, successful incursions and coups was all it took. A campaign of territory creep. With the contests back home, it was an opportune time for the Federation of Terran Colonies to unite against a potential collective effort by the Terran superpowers to bring them back under their thumbs in more than name. Well, if there ever was a civil war between the colonies and their various patron governments, Mars would be little more than a supply station. It took two weeks for a high-boost transport ship to reach Mars from Earth at the best time of year, and Earth would probably never take Nineveh. Too many die-hard anarchists who'd rather blow up the station than surrender it. Or so the editorial said. If such a war ever happened, Joss would be well out of the way. 30 minutes until final boarding for Shuttle 877 to Nineveh with connecting flights to Mars. All passengers, please make your way to the ticket counter. Not yet. Can't get in line till the last possible moment. He'd checked in this morning before he went in search of Alex Hart. God, that name was like a fire in his brain. And he'd spent the rest of the morning watching for those that might be watching for him, and making occasional inquiries about chartering a flight to Nineveh in time for the last jump to Mars. No luck. There is no such thing as luck, Joss corrected himself. If luck had been a factor, he was either blessed or he'd be dead. Fortune favors the foolish only because any self-respecting fool made his own luck and usually lost a good chunk of his hide in the bargain. Joss peeked out from behind the battered paper just in time to see a man and a woman entering the cinema. Expensive tastes. Going to see a film with a human writer and real actors. Something familiar about... Joss was out of his seat and running before he could finish the thought. It was that barkeep from the poker game last night. He dashed across the crowded walkway and caught the shoulder of the man's shirt just as he was about to duck inside after his woman. Sir, excuse me. Joss should have been gasping, but he was too intent on his words to waste time on such things. You're the barkeep at the port of call, yes? Yes. The man pulled his shoulder out of Joss's grip and stood tall, deliberately dwarfing him. Can I go now? I need to catch up with my wife. Undeterred, Joss pulled a hundred-credit note out of his pocket. Actually, I need some information. Can you assist me? Hold on a minute. I'll be right back. Allie! She couldn't hear him above the murmur of the crowd, but he caught up with her a second later and grabbed her arm. Allie, that character from the bar, the one who beat you last night, he's here. He's about to offer me a hundred credits to find Alex. Go home, get dressed. I'll set up a meeting and call you there. Uh, Jim, I... He didn't hear the rest. He'd already disappeared back into the crowd. Outside, he found his mark reading a day-old copy of USNA Today and furtively peeking around the tiny tears on the front page. They looked like they'd worn through naturally. As calmly as he could manage without appearing suspicious, Jim navigated his way through the crowd to the shoulder of the stranger. From this close, it was clear the holes were poked deliberately. Whoever this guy was, he was no amateur. Now, how can I help you? Oh! The stranger looked up from the paper and quickly folded it and tucked it away. Your name is Jim, right? Jim nodded. I don't have much time. My shuttle's leaving in just under half an hour. I need to speak to Alex Hart. I'll give you this. He opened his hand and displayed a folded C-note. Plus a cut of whatever I win if you can have him meet me for a brief game at that restaurant. He motioned with his head towards a card room at the end of the block. In ten minutes. I can't wait any longer than that. 
Who shall I tell him is asking for him? Tell him that his opponent from last night, Joss Kyle, would like the honor of challenging him again to ensure that any first victory wasn't a mere fluke. Okay. Ten minutes. Jim turned away and weaved through the crowd towards a public terminal. He made a display of placing the call, and while the switchboard was ringing a number he knew for a fact wouldn't answer, he took his earbud out of his pocket and whispered Allie's private number. He slipped a dental mirror that he kept in his left sleeve down into his palm and watched Briggs surreptitiously. Briggs, he now knew it had to be Briggs, was also watching him. What's the plan? Allie's voice crackled in his ear. A red-headed woman in a ship suit sat down on the bench next to Briggs, but he seemed not to notice. She rubbed the back of her calf like she'd been in space too long and was still adjusting to real gravity again. Allie, we have ten minutes. I need you to get into as much of your costume as you can and meet me at the red line at the end of the section by the theater. Ten minutes? Are you crazy? It's all we've got. Our mystery guest wants to meet Alex Hart. I'm going to try to ID him before we grab him. I'll meet you there in ten minutes. Main lounge near the cigar bar. I'll be there. She turned off her link. Jim took a deep breath and turned around. The redhead was moving on. Joss Kyle? A woman who looked in her early 30s sat down next to him unceremoniously and rubbed her calf. About 5'6", red-headed. She didn't look directly at him. She didn't so much as glance sidelong at him. She blended in perfectly, just a spacer, fresh back into gravity after a long stretch and freefall, but the perfection of her technique said she was dangerous. Maybe. If I am, how can I help you? He didn't look directly at her. He watched her in a shop window, but he couldn't get a good enough view. I hear you're looking for a private chart in an Innova that'll make it in time for the Martian jump. If you are, in fact, Joss Kyle, I might be able to accommodate you. No fool, this one. She raised her hands over her head and stretched, letting the collar of her suit fall open so he caught her left breast with his periphery. Now, she wanted his attention, and he wasn't going to give it to her. He looked back through the paper at Jim, who was making a call at the terminal. He had to get rid of her. Alex Hart would be here soon. Terms? 15000 Cash. Up front. Twelve, and no record of my transit. No questions asked. 14000 for your invisible transit. Plus, I have some information that could save your life. Now, what sort of information might that be? Well, I noticed that your name was not on the passenger manifest for the flight that came in here. You also deal in cash, which is highly unusual for someone as... noble as you seem to be. Joss glanced surreptitiously at the clock over the clothing store across the thoroughfare. Is there a point to all this? I have an appointment. Joss started to fold his paper. He didn't like it. The smell was going from bad to worse, and satisfying his conscience wasn't worth his skin. If you don't wait until I'm finished... She switched her weight and turned towards him, and dug the muzzle of a gun into his side so that his body shielded her from Jim's line of sight. I'll put a hole in you. Private identities aren't cheap, and there's only one who fits your description on the watch list. You're a man who values his skin. So, Reuben Briggs, I have just one question for you. Why are you sitting here waiting for a couple of contractors to come and catch you? Joss's breath caught in his throat. Whoever this woman was, she knew all about him, and she knew how he got here. Yet she wasn't a contractor, at least apparently. Who the hell are you? Jim shifted his weight from foot to foot. His posture was tense. He looked to be wrapping up the call. The woman next to him whispered with a leer in her voice into his ear. You can call me Cassie. And a friend, if you know what's good for you. Some friends of mine heard that there was some operators on the station, and we knew someone big was coming through. We only hoped it would be you. I have to walk away in 30 seconds, so here's how it goes down. As far as I can tell, Alex Hart doesn't exist. He showed up here a year ago and made a big splash in the poker circuit. 
One of the owners of the bar circulated the word that Hart had won the U.S. National Championship six years ago. There was no Alex Hart in any poker tournament in U.S. history. But there was a Melissa Hartman, who placed first about six years ago. There are no records of an Alex Hart ever coming to this station. What do? Ah. She cut him off with the jab of the gun barrel. Let's just say that I have friends inside security. Your buddy Jim's name is Hartman. Alyssa is his wife. Jaw saw Jim punch the terminal screen to sign off and collect his receipt. They've been at the port of call a year. Now, Mr. Briggs, what reason could a woman have for dressing up like a man to play poker in a casino right next to the customs area? She pulled the gun out of his ribs and stood up. Ask your friend Jim about his monthly calls to Washington. What's your stake in this? As she walked past him, she muttered, Welcome to the Underground Railroad. Jim sat down ten seconds later and said, Red Lion, Main Lounge, ten minutes. You'll be there. I have to get back to my movie. Ten minutes. Joss looked up at the clock and cursed to himself. He'd gone from playing a long bluff to being the only man at the table not holding a gun. If he had half the sense the universe gave to a cockroach, he'd walk to his departure gate, get on, and never look back again. But the game wasn't that simple anymore, and he knew it. He'd been made by someone, and he didn't know who. And whoever had made him was good. Very good. If he left, they'd be able to find him again. It was a shitty hand, but it was what he'd been dealt. He reached behind to scratch his back and moved his Glock into an accessible inside pocket. By long habit, he always left disassembling and stowing it till last. This time, it might save his neck. He hoisted his carry-on bag over his shoulder and walked to the Red Lion. You've been listening to Episode 3 of Antithesis, Book 1, Predestination and Other Games of Chance. Written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer. Original music for Antithesis written by Danny Shade and is used here with permission. This episode starred Aaron Balabanian as Allie, Brian Levy as Jim, Stephen H. Wilson as Percy Scott, Stephanie Sawyer as Cassie Orenthal, and Kitty Nakian as the Spaceport Announcer. Some sounds courtesy the Free Sound Project at www.freesound.org. Other sounds copyright 2008, Kitty Nakian, and Artistic Whispers Productions. This audiobook was recorded, edited, and mixed at Artistic Whispers Productions in Castro Valley, California. The book is copyright 1997 and 2008, J. Daniel Sawyer, and the recording is copyright 2008, Artistic Whispers Productions. This recording is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 2.0 license, and all other rights are reserved to the author. And there he goes, heading into the Red Lion's Den, so to speak. I'm hearing great things about Antithesis from everyone so far, except for Evo Terra, who caught a lot of production flubs I made in episode one that I'm going to sneakily retcon into the feed once I get far enough ahead on these other episodes. I've actually got everything for the narrator recorded up to episode 12 so far, and I've got most of the guest voices recorded, but I'm still looking for a handful of male and female voices to round out the universe. If you or someone you know would like to be a part of Antithesis, drop me a line at dan at jdsawyer.net. Almost all the remaining parts are small, few paragraphs at most. I gotta tell you though, I am really looking forward to next week's episode. Not just for the story, which is pretty kick-ass and is the culmination of the promise hooked in four dare, but also for the challenge it poses to me as an audio engineer and the new tools I've got arriving tomorrow to help me meet it. You see, I've mixed a lot of sound. Sound for short films, for lectures, for concerts, for DVDs, for stage plays. I spent a lot of years learning audio engineering. 
But all this time, I've been editing my podcast in Audacity because it's quick, it's easy, and it lets me get away with murder. You see, I don't have a proper sound booth. I don't even have a closet with foam walls like Sigler does. What I do have is an office filled with a lot of noisy-ass computers that drives me to distraction when I try to record. Audacity's noise removal tool is a gift from Zeus, or whatever your favorite deity is, when it comes to this kind of thing. Problem is, I can hear it. Even when it works perfectly, I can hear the little algorithms chewing up my precious audio samples, and it pisses me off. So starting with the man in the rain, I decided to do a few things differently. First, I rearranged all the furniture in my office so that I had one room that was totally quiet. I did what I could to get rid of reflections and sound leakage without making it all too god-awful hot. I hate the heat. Then I pinked out the room and adjusted the master EQ for it and switched my recording software. I was talking to Richard Cartwright from the Podiobooks Ning community about this process the other day, and he asked me, why not just use Audacity? You're only recording two tracks at a time, maximum. The reason is that for a project like this, it's simply not powerful enough. I might only be recording two tracks at a time, but I'm mixing down 15 to 20 in some cases, though more commonly it's 6 to 8. Music, resonance passes, dialogue, narration, ambiance, hero sound effects. The airport scene in this episode, for example, was a 10-track mix. Two layers of ambiance, the announcer on the intercom, Joss's thoughts, Joss's dialogue, Jim's voice, Cassie's voice, the narrator, and one track of foreground sound effects. Each one of those tracks has a number of effects applied to it. Most of those are very minor. They do things like add or remove a little bit of resonance for the voice, or pitch a sound up or down a tiny bit, and all of them also have their own EQ passes to ensure that they don't tread on each other's spectrum so that everything is clear when multiple things are happening at once. To do this in Audacity takes a big, major, heaping buttload of work, and Audacity can't do the most important thing which is automation. See, when you're mixing that many tracks together, you're always playing with the gain structure, bringing one thing forward, pushing another one back, moving faders all the time. And if it's a stereo mix, you also have to set your pan pots so that the voices and the effects appear at the right spot in audio space. When you've got your eyes closed and you're listening, you can hear where in the room something is supposed to be by the way you set your pan pots. To do this right, you have to be able to program your faders and pan pots to move when you need them to so you can get things to move through the room. Audacity can't do this with panning, and it can only do it to a limited extent with the volume. Doing it in a Pro Audio Suite like Pro Tools makes the whole thing loads easier. So that's what I've been doing. I've been mixing these things in Ardor, which is a great open source Pro Audio Suite, and it has been a dream. But mixing this episode made it very clear to me that I need something that'll allow me to set the levels on multiple tracks at once. So yesterday I went ahead and ordered a Behringer BCF2000. It's basically a mouse that looks like a mixing board, and it lets me control my levels and pans through an interface that's really quick and that I know really well from the years mixing live sound. By the way, anyone at Behringer listening, I'm happy to sponsor this thing if it works as advertised, so please give me a call. We'll work out a deal. So anyway, since next week's episode is the most sonically complex episode so far, and since it contains a hell of an action scene, I'm gonna need this little board to do this episode. 
When I haven't been mixing the episodes, I've been busting my tail working on the final draft of the next two novels I'm going to podcast. And those are both looking very good. I think you guys are going to like them, but I'll tell you more about them in the weeks to come. Since we did behind-the-scenes trivia for audio engineers this week, I'll do the the behind-the-scenes trivia for writers next week and pick up the story of the three threads that helped me put together the Antithesis series. Anyway, like I said so far, the feedback has been fabulous. And right now I'm running a bit long with this banter, so I'm going to save the actual feedback for next week and give it all to you then. Now remember, you can leave feedback for me at www.jdsawyer.net on the blog, by emailing me at dan at jdsawyer.net, by twittering me at dsawyer, or by calling the Destiny line at 206-350-2340. Please keep those comments coming. And if you're enjoying yourself, be sure to tell your friends. Our listener base is growing very slowly but steadily and now includes listeners in Canada, England, and Israel. So please inflict an MP3 on a loved one or a loathed one and keep checking the feed every Thursday for your weekly fix of Predestination and other games of chance. And remember, it isn't whether you win or lose. It's how you rig the game. (laughs) 